0: You're listening to Under the Radar Podcast, where artists share their childhood memories, musical inspirations, and the milestones that help shape them and their music. I'm your host, Celine Blocky.
1: He asked me one day why I wanted to be in bands, and I didn't really have a good answer. And he said the reason to make music is to try to touch somebody or to try to give something to somebody. And I'm, I'm glad I heard that really early on in, in making in making records, just to have it be an outward process as opposed to a self-aggrandizing process. And the other thing was uh, he told me his only regret in making records was that he didn't take things far enough. He, he said he played it really safe a lot of the time, and he always encouraged me to take things too far. Hi, this is Jamie from the band Shushu. Our new record is called Oh No. It is on polyvinyl records and stone-to-death records and is out March 26th.
0: In the spring of this year, I spoke to Jamie Stewart of experimental noise and pop band Shushu. You'll even hear the sparrows nesting in the roof of his house. Shoo shoo, like under the radar magazine, where this podcast gets its name from, is twenty this year, and this week the magazine just launched its twin covers, twentieth anniversary edition to celebrate. Jamie, when I spoke to him, was still coming to terms with the fact that it's been twenty years.
1: That's coming up a lot right now, for obvious reasons. I feel very weird about it. That's a long time.
0: So this will be our Christmas episode. We're doing things a little bit differently. This episode is about family, friends, and the way they affect our art in good and bad ways. Jamie and I have both lost a parent to suicide. And in doing this podcast, I've come to slowly realize that perhaps that's why I do this interview is about childhood and memories. Because in a song, I might hear a turn of phrase a morsel of a feeling about something that connects to my unnamed grief or trauma in the way that my conscious mind doesn't want to. And speaking to a songwriter is an opportunity to unlock that, to make some small sense of it. Like Shushu has a reputation for being a difficult band, Shushu albums attempt to dissect disturbing themes like sexual violence, suicide, and self-loathing. The music can be hard to understand, to stomach, to even listen. They usually employ a complex mix of dissonance and malady that isn't always palatable to the ear. But Jamie, you will hear in this interview, is sweet, funny, and affable. People often comment on this disconnect, how Shushu's music can be off-putting and violent, but its creator is so endearing. I think in some ways, that's exactly why he is so nice, or quote-unquote normal. Because in his music, he reaches out to the darker margins where unpleasantness exists, the taboos, existential dread. He pokes at and he plays with these themes and then he folds them into a song and we find what we need from it. The like a maracas. You don't care who hears. It costs a lot to feel this cuckoo. What is a base without a crisis? Just let them be as a crisis. Move no left. posture. Bad posture, flaming hot Cheetos, Fuego Turkeys. This bonkers track is from Ono oh No, Shushu's 12th studio album. For almost a decade now, Shushu has been a duo with Jamie and his fellow partner in noise, Angela Seo. Ono oh is an album of duets, which sees them team up with Angus Andrew from Liars, Sharon Van Atten, Twin Shadow, among others. Ironically, it's a project that came to life when Jamie was at an absolute low. Before we find out more, Jamie takes us back to his Los Angeles childhood, growing up in the valley, the oldest of three kids.
1: I grew up in, you know, a smog-filled, grid-shaped suburb. As is the case in all suburbs, there wasn't a lot going on, but, you know, half an hour away is the city of Los Angeles where there's always something going on. So there was this dichotomy of the ultimate and track home blandness, but then you could stand on a hill and literally see where some of the most exciting art and music in the entire world was happening. Feeling smushed and kind of pointless, but knowing that there was an escape to it. It, it wasn't you know like some suburbs where there's no hope for you mm-hmm. to do something or find something interesting anywhere. Mm-hmm. It was always quite nearby. It just took a little bit of uh, guts to drive over the hill.
0: So... What was a perfect day? I mean, if we could take a, a moment to, we're very caught up in the present right now, to just kind of go back and think back to your childhood and what a perfect day would have been like for you.
1: Well, for better or worse, my parents were both nuts, both struggling with a lot of mental health issues. I mean, they loved us and they made it apparent that they loved us, but there wasn't a ton of supervision when I was a, a, a smaller kid. I mean, there was enough. That I'm alive and, you know, I didn't starve to death, so it wasn't like there was none. But, I mean, it. I could go for a couple days without really seeing my parents. Wow. But I didn't think it was unusual at the time. You know, when you're a child, you, I mean, everything seems kind of normal. Um, but what that afforded me was, you know, my, my dad was a musician and my mom was a hippie, so the... Creative world was something that was encouraged. So, not having a ton of supervision led to, you know, fifteen-hour-long running around the neighborhood games with the you know, the other kids in the neighborhood who also didn't seem to be particularly well supervised because we were spending the entire day <laughs> together. And one of the upsides of living in suburbia was there was not a lot of people around or not a lot of traffic, so we could, you know, run around the streets without fear of being mowed down you know the perfect day would be we would make swords and spears and axes or whatever and ride around the neighborhood on our bikes making up all all these imaginary worlds i mean i might be exaggerating this memory but i feel like things would go on for like days, and days and days and days and days and days without without stopping or you know or we would sleep in the yard as as part of the adventure that we were on
0: what were these adventures
1: they were largely based on i guess <laughs> it's funny to say this we played dungeons and dragons a lot But we would expand it into the neighborhood and call it Dungeons & Dragons, We Are the Characters. That was the name (laughs) of it. (laughs) Like the clunkiest thing an eight-year-old could come up with. So a lot of times we would start off with just a piece of paper and dice version of the game, but we would get more sort of physically enthusiastic about it. The two kids that I played with a lot... I was always really hesitant and kind of nervous as a child mm-hmm. and kind of scared of everything. But the two kids that I played with mostly, they were twin brothers, had zero concerns for their physical safety at all. They were, you know, they would, you know, climb up telephone poles with a bow, God. like a, a real bow and arrow and, you know, like sh- shoot the arrow across the neighborhood <laughs> at I don't know what. As part of the game, they lit a palm tree oh in their front yard on fire. There was a monster in the palm tree. We had to get it out.
0: <laughs> so fun.
1: Yeah, you know, they were always like throwing firecrackers at things and, you know, and I was, you know, cowering in a corner just terrified. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I played with them all the time. So I was obviously interested yeah. in, uh, in where this mayhem would, would lead.
0: What a great childhood.
1: That part of it was cool. And I, I think it led to an adulthood of being very interested in pursuing creativity to a life and death kind of degree. Mm.
0: I think you kind of had a thought there that that part of it was great, but is there a memory of your childhood that's unpleasant?
1: Like I said, my my parents were crazy. Uh, I mean, they both. My dad was bipolar, and I I think my mom was, although she's on the, the right. She's leading a different life now and is a lot is a, is a completely different person now than she was when I was a child. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we dealt with a. Uh, I mean, I don't want to get into details, but, you know, all three of us, meaning my siblings, we, you know, dealt with a lot of abuse from them. Mm. But, you know, my parents were both brutally abused also. So it, they treated us much better than they were treated. But that's that's how the cycle goes. Mm.
0: So what was the first time for you that you kind of became cognizant of music as something that was kind of transcendent? It could take you somewhere else.
1: When I was a kid, my parents bought me a, a stereo I think, for my eighth birthday and a stack of tapes, and there was really no looking back at that point, like I had dominion over what would be occurring sonically through this device, like like a total nerd uh which little has changed you know i had it had a tape counter on it, and I would listen to the song and I would write down the numbers on the tape counter, you know so i I could exactly find it on there and made very detailed catalogs of all the songs and how I felt about them. Basically, copied the liner notes into a notebook, even though you know I had liner notes, such <laughs> as my own like private set of liner notes. <laughs> that kind of got me into the details of of what records could be. As I mentioned, my dad was a musician, and as was my uncle, and they they were both very very successful and, and extraordinarily talented. So it was it was always around when I was a kid, but I I wasn't really made a direct part of it. It would be like they would take me to a studio and roll me under the mixing desk and I would fall asleep while they were working. You know, but there were always musicians coming over to the house and they didn't really play, but I listened to them talking about it and you get a kind of vibe from the type of person that they were or what made them excited or what seemed interesting to them. You know, I would certainly pick up on that. And in high school, there weren't a ton of instruments around the house, but I started picking them up and trying to teach myself how to play.
0: Which instruments were you teaching yourself first?
1: Uh, bass first, and then my dad bought me a drum machine when I was in 10th or 11th grade. That was the thing that really set me off. I couldn't, I, I was never, a. I mean, I'm kind of more of a functional player, mm-hmm. but getting the drum machine, which I still have, was the thing that opened the door for what, what music could be for me, sort of spiritually, I think. That's a funny thing to say about a drum machine, <laughs> but that opened my heart to music was the Alesis HR-16B drum machine.
0: It's interesting because your father was a very, very, as you say, successful music producer, you know, involved with producing Billy Joel and and Tom Jones, and your uncle was in the Kingston Trio. Yeah. But your father also later on went on to be a computer programmer and get involved in like instruments that musicians used.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he He started working for the company that made Pro Tools. Oh, wow. And this company called Apex that makes recording equipment. The first few records that we made were made on Pro Tools prototypes that he stole from work. You know, that they would be like two versions of this particular A to D converter that they were never gonna make. And he was like, oh, my kid could use this. So um he uh Do
0: you still have that stuff? Did you make stuff using that?
1: We made our first four records on those. <laughs> and if it, it it eventually it broke down one day, and I took it to this Pro Tools place to get it serviced, and the guys were cracking up they're like how do you have this we we made two of these you know my dad had died at that point and i had told them where i got it and they were laughing their asses off they gave me a ton of free stuff because they thought the whole thing was so funny (laughs) they said it should not have worked they had no idea how there was a really specific order in which i needed to turn things on otherwise it wouldn't work yeah and um, the the service guys did not believe me that that we had made records on on the stuff
0: and your father just gave him to you he didn't like did he show you how to use it or anything, or did you just tinkle
1: there was a funny a funny thing with him is I can think of two times in my entire life that he sat down to show me how to play something, and I remember both of what the things were very specifically, but yeah, he never really he didn't teach me very specifically. He taught me two tenets of musical philosophy mm-hmm. and he taught me this Motown bass line, and he taught me how to practice playing rhythm guitar like this, just muting the strings. He showed me yeah. that. But then he he would set up situations that I could teach things to myself. Uh like, like well, I came home from school one day and there was a four-track on my bed and the manual. And he didn't show me you know, and and or I would come home and there would be a keyboard in my room. And if I it it got to be if I used the things, they would stay, and if I didn't, they would just without explanation one day be gone, as was the case with this keyboard. I don't know if he did that because he had a lot of emotional problems and I don't know if it was just too tough for him to sort of do things in person or if he genuinely thought that was the right path to being the most creative is figuring it out yourself. Or I think part of it could also have been that, you know, as I said, he was extraordinarily accomplished. And, you know, as a kid, it's not like I showed a tremendous innate talent or something like that. So you know and he would know what that was mm. you know what it you know like some parents just think that everything that their kids do is they're geniuses i mean he he knew i was not a genius <laughs> i don't know if it was just him not wanting to and i don't mean this in a in a cruel way but not wanting to waste his time but he could still tell that i had a real desire to mm. do it but i i think he 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 could he could probably tell that you know if i was ever going to get it together it wouldn't be because of talent it would be through working hard mm. and part of you know in setting up a situation where I was going to have to work harder by teaching it to myself i think maybe he was hoping that that might might spark something yeah or he was just stoned and didn't <laughs> give a shit too I, I mean it could have been any it could have been all of those things
0: <laughs> all the, and all the more amazing that we come out of this stuff <laughs> doing the things uh, that we yeah. do here to functioning in the real world i mean
1: uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> I know, humans humans persist despite all of our best efforts to destroy ourselves. There's just more of us every day.
0: This is so true. Um, So what were the two tenants that he taught you about music?
1: I hold these very, very close to my heart, and I always feel a little funny saying them because they are a little on the corny side, but I believe them very deeply. One, uh, he asked me one day why I wanted to be in bands, and I didn't really have a good answer. Um, and he said the reason to make music is to try to touch somebody or to try to give something to somebody. And I'm, I'm glad I heard that really early on in, in, making, in making records, just to have it be an outward process as opposed to a self-aggrandizing process. And the other thing was uh, he told me his only regret in making records was that he didn't take things far enough. He, he said he played it really safe a lot of the time and he always encouraged me to take things too far.
0: So, what was it like later on then being in a band with your dad, the indestructible beat of Palo Alto? What a name!
1: Well, we swiped it from this record called "The Indestructible Beat of Soweto." Yeah, it was interesting. Like as as I said, he was pretty bonkers. It was as I was growing up, and then he had a couple of years where he completely got his act together and was, I think, trying to make up for not having spent a lot of time with me as a kid, and I was getting more serious about music and. I was trying to put this band together, and he didn't offer to do it, but I asked him if he would do it. I think I could tell that he, uh, unconsciously, I could tell that he was in a much clearer place than he was, and he seemed to really want to try to, you know, he, he, uh, heal some wounds and, you know, mm. and be as helpful as he could. And unfortunately, this period only lasted a couple of years, and then he t- started getting crazy again. But I would have a very different life now, and of have a Never really have gotten to know him particularly well had we not gotten to do this together for a couple of years. It was great playing with him. I mean, he was he's a fantastic musician.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: it was the first band that I ever sang in. He encouraged me to do it and or he told me that I could do it. And I and I think as is the case with a lot of kids, if you have a kind of absent parent that basically anything that they say you hold very closely to heart. Yeah. And I I, uh, I I probably would not have done it had he said that I I I couldn't do it. In those short couple of years, I I learned a lot about arranging from him, and a lot about you know how how to play together as as a band. It was I think that band sometimes as many as nine people were in it. Yeah. Um. So it was it was a lot a lot to keep organized. Everybody in the band was around my age, so I think also for everybody having somebody who was older with a with a lot of experience really kept them interested, but also there was somebody we could all, as a group, turn to for musical answers, essentially.
0: So you and a few other bands before you started Shushu, and I understand the name was taken from the Joan Chen movie, but what was your connection with it? You must have had a strong emotional connection because you went and named your whole band after it. It's like 20 years, you're still working under that name.
1: The person that I started Shushu with, Corey McCulloch, uh, he and I had played in In Beat Beauty of Palo Alto together and then that band pared down a little bit to this other band called Ten in the Swear Jar and then that band pared down even further into Shushu and he and I both saw that movie, not together but at around the same time. And Basically, it's it's a movie about a, a young person during the Cultural Revolution in China who goes out to his commune and every bad thing that you could think of. yeah that could happen, happens. And every effort that she made to improve her life made things worse. And although the circumstances couldn't be more different between Corey and my and my life and, and the character Shushu's life, we related very deeply to trying to make things better but having them only become worse through your efforts. You know, kind of a no-good-deed-goes-unpunished circumstance. It resonated very deeply with us. Both of our lives at the time that the band started were a complete... Train wreck nightmares and uh to see to see that portrayed in a in a beautiful and artful way and, and Joan Chen's movie was something that, that really uh it stuck with us clearly <laughs> I haven't seen it since then mm. kind of like each decade of the band I think okay well I've got to watch it now you know <laughs> but you know the, the second decade is coming up and I have no plans to watch it I'm a little nervous to see it I'm wondering if it will hold up. You know, I mean, I've based my entire life around the title of this movie. If it turns out that now, in retrospect, I don't like it, then what the <laughs> fuck am I going to do? Um, So, I don't know. I probably will never watch it again and just hold on to the dream. Uh, um,
0: well, I saw like 35 minutes of it, and it was beautiful. The way it's shot, and it's from a very, very kind of feminist perspective. Like, one of the first things they, they talk about was – Having like sanitary napkins and for her period when she goes away, when she gets sent down into the country, this is the stuff she does. I remember seeing that going, Wow, that's very even modern and you know provoking, even for now, to have that be in your first 15 minutes of your movie, never mind something that was made in you know China. I'm really excited to actually go back and finish the film to see how it plays out. I was a bit sad when I, I mean, I, I know what the ending is and I was like, really? <laughs> I'm still hoping for a happy yeah, ending. <laughs> I,
1: was, I was quite shocked by the ending at the time. It, I did not expect it at all. and no, I, I, think, I think that was the tipping point for Corey and me. I don't know, it was going bad and it was getting worse and then it got worse and then it got as bad as it could possibly imaginably be. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I hear you. Um, (laughs) I guess saying that now, why was that a surprise?
0: (laughs) Exactly. And I mean, it it makes perfect sense, you know, in the poetics of your music. It, it, It makes sense there. Shushu was formed in San Jose, where Jamie was living at the time. The band released Knife Play, their debut album. And not long after, there's a family tragedy. When Jamie returns home after hearing about the news of his father's suicide, he finds his unopened album there in his father's room. I ask him if he saw it coming.
1: I, it's, I, I did, I didn't, he, he told me for years that he was planning on doing it, um, and I didn't know. I mean, my whole life was in total shambles, and I was, you know, pretty young also, so I, I just didn't really know how to process it. But I didn't realize that he wasn't talking to the rest of my family about that; that he was just talking to me about it. So everybody else was, you know, I wasn't, you know, my whole family's life at the time was in total chaos. So we, I mean, we were talking, but it, it we, you know, we all had so much to deal with for a long list of reasons. So every nobody else knew that he was going to do it. Um, so I, I feel really mixed about having been given that information. On one hand, I, I was prepared. I mean, I had been slowly preparing myself for years, you know, for it to happen. So when it happened, I was obviously incredibly distressed, but I wasn't shocked. Mm. It was just like, oh, okay, there's that. I you know, I, I saw this coming. Mm. But then on the other hand, I had to carry around this information the entire time. But then I see how my brother and sister have dealt with it, and it actually seemed, mm. they seemed to take it a lot harder because they didn't have any time to prepare, really. So I I don't know. I And, and I, I talked to my brother about it. He's a parent, he's mm-hmm. a dad, I mean. And uh, he, uh, he carries around a lot more resentment about it than I do. I think because... Mm. He did not have time to prepare, but I think because I'm not a parent and I don't have plans to have kids, I don't have the experience of of uh, you know, having somebody be entirely dependent upon me. And my brother's even younger than me, so I, I think he, you know, dealt with it an even with an even less less developed heart in mind. Um, I don't know. I'm probably babbling a little bit. It's obviously a pretty loaded subject.
0: It's definitely a difficult thing to talk out loud about. But in his music, Jamie often returns to these difficult subjects. In this track, I love the Valley O from Shushu's third album, Fabulous Muscles. You hear him trying to make sense of his family's troubled history.
1: It's a bell and you've got to take it. It's a bell and you've got to take. It.
0: two decades, Shushu have continued to release challenging work, sometimes to the point of putting their own die fans off. Like the unlistenable noise elements on this seemingly off-putting track called I Love Abortion. For the listener who takes the time, the music offers more than just noise and nihilism. On the album "Oh God, I Hate Myself," Jamie fashions delightful tunes from the bleeps and squeaks of the Nintendo DS.
1: for what I am.
0: their 11th album Always, Angela Seo, who seems to love cranking up the distortion and fuzz as much as Jamie, offers us a genuine poppy sounding track. Though this is Shushu's world, and so there's a fatalistic edge to the pop. So we come to Oh No, I understand it's sort of an album that was born out of a betrayal of a friendship that was sort of broken. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Because as an album of collaborators, it's actually about musical friendships. And it's interesting that in the press release that, you know, it's born of anguish and isolation, but led to a discovery of community and friendship.
1: There were six people that in a really short period of time, that I was very close friends with and, and all had very close art relationships with. And it's completely unrelated that this happened, but it just coincidentally, all of them, for lack of a better description, to fuck me over pretty monstrously in one way or another. And, you know, I'm kind of over-emotional anyway all of the time and don't deal with stress very well. And I'm not a particularly social person, so I take friendships probably more... I hold on to them probably a little more tightly than is healthy. Um, but because all of these things happen at once and just because of my natural sort of emotional makeup, it caused me to have a nervous breakdown. Right after that occurred, um a lot of people who I didn't think that I was didn't expect to hear from, and a lot of people interested in the band, and a lot of people that I, you know, stayed friends with reached out to to check on me. Um Way you know, I I you know I don't really like people anyway, and I I was so uh, I was so touched by how much generosity and kindness people were showing me that really pretty quickly I was able to kind of get back on my feet again. I mean, I was seeing it shrink and going to group therapy and doing all that stuff you're supposed to do, but it was because mm-hmm. so many people, so many more people showed me kindness than had been treated me badly, it, it was exactly what I needed to see. I just needed to be reminded that that there is some good in the world, <laughs> essentially, <laughs> um, which is just not how I feel generally. Uh, and I, I really I really needed it. Uh, and I thought that the idea to do a record of duets, well, the record is not about those circumstances at all, or the, the songs aren't, but the idea of doing it as duets was uh, an, an attempt for it to be a you know a, a symbol of that appreciation you know doing something with another person and it, you know it was other people that you know, pulled me out of this morass so it it's a, a way to try to procedurally show gratitude uh, mm-hmm. for all for all. um Jesus is making me sound really corny it's essentially for that love that people showed. <laughs> I could say love, just very okay.
0: <laughs> it's not a bad word, all right. <laughs> um, yeah, it's you know, and I think uh, that sentiment permeates through the record in the music, it, it comes through. I don't know if even if you hadn't put that down in your press release when you listen to it, I think it's pretty obvious that it's, it's a hopeful sort of record.
1: I, I w- one of the things that I really like about music is 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 having things interpreted in a different way. For me, the su- the subject matters of the songs are not particularly hopeful at all. I think the procedure was hopeful, but I really like that for you know for you as a listener that you have a totally different take on it than I do, which I think is what makes music great. It's simultaneously direct and totally amorphous. You can collectively love something in an individualistic way.
0: And to that point, Sat Mezicalita, the first single of oh No is a duet with Sharon Van Atten. Long-time fans of the band will have access to a rich tapestry of older music to make meaning of this track. But for a new fan like myself, I was struck by how different a bigger-name act like Van Atten can sound quite different and the way her voice morphs to perfectly inhabit the Shushu universe. I was listening to Hanif abdur podcast object of sound, and Van Acton actually mentions how she approaches a duet, like she's acting, she's playing a part for somebody else, in this case, Jamie. What were you doing there?
1: So unanxious to be liked. Maybe because you're Who? Oh. Oh.
0: Sharon Van Atten song, how is that written? Because that's one of the ones that was pre-pandemic, so you actually were in the right. room or in the studio with her. Mm-hmm. Did you have a semblance of an idea where you wanted to go?
1: I played on her last record and played in her live band mm-hmm. for a little bit, so that, that's how we met. Um, she worked with the producer, John Congleton, and he and I are old friends, and he's working on a couple of shushu records. So she and I got to be friends through that, and I, you know, I, I she's one of the best singers that there is she has a a very unadorned and pure and very real voice um and this you know this the song that she's on sad miscalita is uh to me seems pretty direct and i knew that she was somebody who could put that across without any hesitation so i had written written the words and and sent her a, a guide melody um but she she was actually quite sick when she did it uh, but had a crazy schedule so it was the the only day that she could come over and do it so she actually she sings an octave below where mm-hmm. i sing which normally just men just physiologically have lower voices than women do just for how yeah people's bodies are shaped i wasn't planning on singing it in the octave that i was singing it in but i you know in order to have things blend i needed to, to um to push it up so i'm you know i wish that she hadn't been been sick for her own sake but it led to the song sounding differently than it would have otherwise as is usually the case i i didn't give her a lot of direction i just said you know do it how you want to do it she said that my phrasing is really and completely crazy and almost impossible to follow (laughs) so she she was she told me later she was really struggling with it just because it was uh she said it nicer than this, but basically because it was so weirdly phrased. I could not tell this, and I didn't know at the time, because she's a pro and is an incredibly accomplished singer.
0: And she sort of wanted to stay true to your vision of how you'd laid it out.
1: I think that that was one of the things, too, I talked about a little bit earlier. I think because I was like six feet away from her, I think that's probably why she was nervous. I think had I not been there and she was doing it at home, she probably would have felt a little freer not to try to follow this weird-ass guide vocal that she was listening to while it was going on. <laughs> That said, I think she did an extraordinarily beautiful job—an incredibly beautiful job.
0: Yeah. Um, um, when you listen to it, you have to really listen to hear the voices, because like I was like, "Who is singing on this? Is that really Sharon?" Because it was low.
1: We were both really surprised by that, yeah, because our singing blended together really, really well. I mean, we have yeah. very different voices and sing in quite different ways. It seemed to be a, a natural fit, which we neither of us were expecting.
0: Sad Mazzucolita was one of only two tracks to be recorded in person before COVID. Rumpus Room, featuring Angus Andrew from Australian band Liars, is one of the album's most rambunctious tracks and might have actually benefited from the complications of lockdown. Rumpus Room, so this is one of my favourites, just because it, it was just such a feel-good vibe. Oh, Fuego turkeys. What is he going on about? Others like snack foods. <laughs> <laughs> He's just talking about snack foods. <laughs> Angus has that, you know, the Australian kind of devil may care attitude.
1: <laughs> it's a, a way that a lot of records are made now. Send somebody a rough mix of something and some, maybe some thoughts about it, or maybe not, and they record it in their home studio and, and send it to you. You know, there's some pluses and minuses to that. The pluses is we couldn't have done it now because of the pandemic were that not technologically possible. but it's you know it's it's fun to be in a room with somebody, and yeah, you know, but like I said before too, he probably felt more free to to you know try some some wilder, even more casual, more laid back things, <laughs> you know getting getting to be alone while he was doing it.
0: So how was it like getting that stuff back from him?
1: Actually, my whole favorite part of this process of, you know, when somebody would send me something is I had obviously had no idea what it was going to be. And unexpected turns and uncertainty and surprises are my favorite part of music. You know, I had no idea how he was going to approach a vocal because he he doesn't have one way of doing vocals for Liars Records. He has a very wide and curious palette. And I thought because my vocals Mm -hmm. were so sort of... Cuckoo town and very intense and really physical. I was d- delighted that his are so almost like. Don't you want to openly like me? <laughs> a coconut? hit me on the head, and <laughs> uh, open, needy, and brown. I don't mean this is in a critical way at all, but almost like a kind of like a stand up comedy vibe. <laughs> like. <laughs> Like I'm kind of the straight person, and he's sort of like making these little comments about me jumping around like you know banana ball style, and you know his response will just sort of be very cool and kind of you know Dean Martin, you know, but not not in a, not in a shitty way. I mean, I'm I'm sure that he felt that that was the best way to present the song, and I, I think having those those two opposites made it much more interesting. My inclination, if I heard something like that, would be to try and match what the person was doing, and I was so glad that his inclination was to complement it by going in completely the opposite direction. I got it back and I was like, you fucking genius, I love this.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it was such a great track. I mean, to sit in that combination with all those songs as well, you know, it really pops. For me, like some of the songs you could go deeper and darker because there's so many shades going on, you're getting a full spectrum, not just one thing over and over again. And so there was like a light relief and a dancey quality to it, and a bounce.
1: I do have a comment on that, but I want to say David Kendrick from Sparks is playing a shishu now. He played drums on that song, and one of the reasons why that song boogie so hard is because he's a badass and played great on it. Um, but that that kind of idea of juxtaposing things that are not unserious, but maybe kind of funny. Like Rumpus Room is kind of a, I mean, it's about some dark things, but it does mention snacks a lot. Like, it's a little bit funny, and which is fine. But <laughs> we'd, we'd swipe that sort of pacing entirely from, from David Lynch. I mean, if you think of almost any David Lynch movie, it'll be like 95% total yes. darkness, and then there'll be some, you know, total hilarious lunacy inserted in it and it's and it's kind of it balances out some of the darker parts or it kind of cleans your palate to be able to get back into it and reassert its darkness
0: one of the darker songs on the album is i dream of someone else entirely it's a duet with canadian composer and polaris award winner owen pallet and it finds Jamie returning to familial themes from his childhood.
1: Of blonded hair. Too stomped upon children dressed up as parents. All of us always <laughs> humiliated. All of us always tight to your feet. All of us always a scream. All of us always shy, shy, shy. I dream of someone else entirely I dream of someone else entirely You said to me, when I think of this family and who's in it How is that supposed to make me feel about myself? A punishment
0: Owen Pallett himself has like come out and said that your album, A Promise, was an album that made him understand how to write songs,
1: which I will never get over. What a nice thing of that was of him to have said, especially as accomplished as he is.
0: With your collaboration with him, what was that like?
1: We've been friends for maybe 15 years or so, it's been a while, and played some of our earlier shows together. Part of our friendship is, we don't talk a lot, but when we do talk, it tends to be about very serious emotional things. The subject matter of the song was uh, a rough one for me, and I knew that he he would understand it and not be afraid to put himself into it. He wouldn't think it was too personal a thing, for him to be involved in. I, I knew it was something that he would be able to deal with very naturally. D- I knew I could absolutely depend on him for, for this one.
0: Did he also provide sonics like music to it or treatments to it?
1: This one I had asked him and he said he wanted to, but was, just had too much work to do, so he just sang on it. Mm. But um, So Angela played on that one, Greg Sonier from Deerhoof played on it, and this incredible guitar player named Charlie Looker. Although Owen sang on it, a lot of people made that song happen.
0: There was something really tender about that song.
1: Thanks. Owen did a wonderful job on it.
0: A highlight of this album for me is Saint Dymphna. It's a stirring and beautiful duet with George Lewis Jr. of Twin Shadow. It illustrates Jamie's deaf talent for tackling difficult or taboo subjects head-on. Dymphna is a 7th century Christian saint who was killed by a father to Really enjoyed that lovely layered mood. It it was weird because it gave me like this incredible sense of well being. But it's not it's no happy story, is it? Because she's the patron saint of people who suffer from nervousness, mental afflictions, and incest because of the the background of her story as a saint. And you also begin with getting used to battery and getting used to getting through it. It's really trauma, right? Um, like, where was your head at? when you wrote that.
1: It's a song that is dedicated to goth teenage runaways that I knew when I was a teenager and the goth teenage runaways that I know now because I play in a band and people say hi on the internet. Mm. There's something really particular about transforming yourself physically in the way that goths do while your body is transforming itself while you were a teenager from being a child into an adult. And then also having to deal with uh, a home life that's um, that you have to extricate yourself from, that you have to free yourself from in order to survive mentally and physically in a lot of cases. Going from an unsafe situation at home to an unsafe situation on the street while you have transformed yourself physically to look in a particular way to t- save yourself from that or because you just like it, you know, while your body is also transforming itself.
0: Why did you pick this collaborator to do this
1: with I totally love George's voice, for one. Mm. He's the person that I know the least on the record. I, I'm, I'm acquainted with his sister, uh, Lygia, who is a, a dancer and a performance artist, and she works a lot with Susanna Soxa, who also sings on this record, and that's how I met mm. Um But I have been a big fan of Twin Shadow. His voice in particular is a stunner. Mm. So I didn't know emotionally if this was something that he would be interested in, but I assumed based on his songs that it was something that he could understand. I didn't explain it to him, but... You know what the song was about because I wanted it to him to be himself in it and not try and put forth what it was for me. But I had a feeling that it was something that he could expand on, either consciously or unconsciously. And another note, sort of pleasant surprises us, he, he added the saxophone to it without me asking... You know, that he did that, it made me realize that, okay, he if he feels free enough to to put an entirely new instrument on it, which I think really took the song over the top to being finished and much more realized that the gut assumption that this might be a, a song that, that could work for him was very luckily mm-hmm. turned out correct. I know I've said this about everybody, but I thought he did such a great job. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true, each person really nailed it. It's a hard thing to do to ask people who are for real serious, busy musicians to take the time to do something like this. And man, everybody destroyed it in the best way. I was so, so honored and delighted. And George in particular on this, he did a lot of super beautiful harmonies. It was very clear that he took a lot of time and care with his singing on it.
0: It's really lovely, and like bottle of rum. The songs that came towards the end as well—it was just like so many feels. It for me, it was so visceral—the sound of like driving in the car at night with your windows down, that balminess in the air. And I was like, "Who is Roberta?"
1: <laughs> do you want? Do you want me to answer that?
0: <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> uh, okay, Roberta is the first cat that I ever had, but I—I <laughs> I am generally not one for looking back at nostalgia at all. And this is this is one of maybe only two or three songs that we have that are about looking back. I use the name Roberta as a stand-in for one of the people that the song is about. It's the person with whom I owned the cat. She and I were very, very, very close and had an extraordinarily tumultuous friendship but also accomplished a tremendous amount together that neither of us could have done alone. It's one of those things about that at the time it seemed genuinely awful and was genuinely awful looking back now, which I am absolutely not inclined to do, having positive memories about the past. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's sort of like exploring the idea or even conceptually like, oh, is it okay to have a fond memory? Just <laughs> It goes against every fiber of my being, but oh God, I'm having a fond memory. What's happening to me? <laughs> um, Roberta is the symbol for my friend.
0: So that idea, the whole friendship thing, really weaves throughout the whole album.
1: For that song in particular, yeah.
0: The album closes with a one-two optimistic punch, the dream pop of Bottle of Rum, followed by a little poem recited by a friend of Jamie's. Little ants, take a chance when you dance. It could be the last dance you ever do. It could be
1: the- My friend Valerie Diaz, I, we're just pals. She's, she's not in the music world. But the eyes that are on the cover of the record, when I drive to her house, those eyes are painted on a salon that I would pass every time to go hang out with her. And I took photos of it and Janelle from Polyvinyl drew them. So Ants is just this little poem lecturing Ants to be brave. I was super baked and just said the poem one night and woke up the next and for some reason I happened to remember it which is not frequently the case when one rambles out little poems when they're super stoned. Valerie grew up on uh, Coney Island so she has a you know a delightful and very thick accent and you know because I drove by her house to basically steal the album art she seemed like the right person to do it and I'm I'm a big Werner Herzog fan and he has talked about in different interviews mm-hmm. about if something comes to you while you're working on something else even if it seems totally out of context and unrelated If it occurs at the same time, there's something in your experience or something in the subconscious of your mind that wants it to be in your project, even if you don't understand why it's there. And for that long list of reasons, it seemed like we had to have ants be at the end.
0: For me, it just sort of ties it up, that sense of hope, that bad shit happens, but life is really fleeting. You're like this little ant. Someone can come and step on you and it's all over, just like that. So just enjoy what you have now. I mean, that's what it said to me. And some of the really dark things that are in there and complicated things, just knowing about the kind of background that has given birth to you as a creative person and still informs your work. Yeah, just all that. I was like, that's what he's saying. Fucking live it up.
1: Life is short. (laughs) Life is short.
0: You know, any moment you can go. So just enjoy it, which I liked. I thought, okay, I'm going to take that away. So What does making music actually mean to you? Because it's not music that appeals to everyone. And you have a huge, let's say, cult following and lots of friends in the business who look up to you and admire what you do and you inspire them. But what does it mean for you to like still be doing this, putting the music that you want to put out 20 years in?
1: I cannot say thank you enough to the universe for the opportunity to do it. Music is my absolute favorite thing in the world and uh the chance to participate in in something that is so endless and so beautiful so ununderstandable but interesting and affirming is really more than I could ask for. I feel so lucky.
0: When people out in the real world say they love your music, how does that make you feel or that something resonated with them?
1: I just tried To remind myself that they deserve us giving it our all every time. You know, I mean, if somebody takes the time to say that they appreciate something that we've done, then it's a reminder that we got to keep doing our best because there's, there's a real person who is going to be listening to the next thing and we don't want to let them down.
0: Yeah. And you also, you listened to what your father told you, the advice about the reason why you're doing music?
1: Clearly to varying degrees of success. (laughs) But it's been uh, probably the best guiding light that I, I, I could have asked for.
0: You've been listening to Under the Radar podcast featuring Jamie Stewart of Shushu. This episode was produced by me, Celine Teoblocky, and executive produced by Mark Redfern. Additional editing was provided by Azeen Samari. Media and graphic design by Jenny Woodward. Our resident legal eagle is Deborah Davis-Hahn. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print magazine and website founded in 2001 by Mark and Wendy Redfern. You can find this at www.undertheradarmag.com. If you can, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash under underscore the underscore radar. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like this episode, please rate the podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Follow us so you don't miss an episode. Till next time, have a happy Christmas.